welcome to the third episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of these podcasts is to go into depth on various, mostly modern, historical issues, with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. Hopefully, that sounds of some interest to you. In this episode of History Matters, we will be looking at the neutral Netherlands, with a bit of an overview of Dutch neutrality after the Napoleonic Wars, and then going all the way up to the end of the First World War. Then, in the next episode, we'll probably do the interwar years and Dutch neutrality in the early part of the Second World War. Originally, I was just going to do the whole thing as a single podcast, but I found so much material in the end, I've decided uh, to divide it down the middle. I may even do a separate podcast on the Dutch East Indies, but I'll, I'll have to see about that. So, although I will refer to the Dutch Empire in passing, and as relevant, for the time being, I will just be focusing on the Netherlands in Europe. And before we dive into this week's topic, I just want to acknowledge some of the really helpful works I consulted this past week. Um, especially useful was Hubert van Toyl's excellent work, The Netherlands and World War I, Espionage, Diplomacy and Survival, published in 2001, I think. Um, as well as the brilliant uh, The Art of Staying Neutral, The Netherlands in the First World War by Abenhaus, which was published a few years later in 2006. Those are my top few recommendations, although there are a few others that also came in really handy. And so, today, as previously mentioned, we are starting our series on the smaller European neutral powers with the Netherlands. I should perhaps clarify what I mean when I say small state, as it has been defined as a state which recognises that it cannot obtain security primarily by the use of its own capabilities, and that it must rely fundamentally on the aid of other states, institutions, processes or developments to do so. I certainly think that the Netherlands, and the other states we will soon be examining, would fit that definition, although the inclusion of the Dutch East Indies would make this perhaps a bit less clear. And unlike with what would later become their southern neighbour of Belgium in 1831, the Netherlands was never a force neutral whose neutrality was guaranteed by larger powers. Neutrality for the Dutch was, instead, a calculated strategic decision, but a decision that was made independently. During a 1906 speech, the Dutch foreign minister made this distinction quite clear by stating that the neutralisation of Switzerland, Belgium and Luxembourg was affected by treaty. If we measure the advantages of neutralisation side by side with the disadvantages, I believe the latter will be the weightier. Even if we allow that, without great counteracting influences, a guaranteed neutrality may be possible for us. Even then, there remains the great disadvantage that we should forfeit our entire liberty of action. I consider that neutralisation cannot agree with a policy which, besides being modest, must also be independent. The devastating experience of Dutch involvement in the Napoleonic Wars had helped shift the country towards neutrality as a means of protecting its territory. The war had seen the Netherlands forced to watch as superior British naval forces systematically dismantled most of its overseas imperial holdings. The end of the war did see the return of Dutch control of the so-called East Indies, but crucially, it also saw the loss of Ceylon, modern Sri Lanka, and the Cape Colony in South Africa. The lessons drawn from this were obvious. Conflict with larger powers would probably result in a stripping away of what remained of Dutch imperial grandeur, and so the benefits of a policy of neutrality to avoid this became self-evident. The Dutch adopted an official stance of neutrality in 1839, shortly after its separation from Belgium had become definite, and it was the loss of Belgium in 1839, following on shortly after its losses in the Napoleonic War, that confirmed the Netherlands' status as something only slightly larger than a third-rate power. Yet there was always an element of contradictory thought in Dutch national thinking during this period. 
On the one hand, the Netherlands wanted to be seen as playing hardly any role of significance in international power relations, and on the other hand, wanted to be recognised as a sort of middle power in view of its major colonial possessions in Asia, and to a far lesser extent in Dutch Guiana and the Caribbean. It was not until after the Franco-German War of 1870-1871 that the Dutch began to proclaim their neutrality on the international stage. The sudden emergence of a Prussian-dominated Imperial Germany as a new neighbour to the East meant that the Netherlands was placed in a very worrying strategic situation. It now became paramount for the Netherlands to proclaim its neutrality at every available opportunity. The strategic situation was now extremely bleak. Any conflict with Britain and or France would lead to the probably permanent loss of its remaining imperial possessions, but antagonising its new German neighbour could prove equally as fatal to the domestic metropole. Neutrality seemed like truly the only realistic option available to the Netherlands. And as the 19th century wore on, the Netherlands gradually developed a reputation as one of Europe's leading permanent neutral states, along with Switzerland. This was especially true in the creation of rights and obligations of neutral states, we saw in a previous podcast the creation of a lot of international law happening at The Hague during the First and Second Peace Conference of 1899 and 1907. Den Haag was also chosen as the location of a permanent court of arbitration in 1899, which ended up being located inside of a so-called peace palace, which finished construction a year before the outbreak of the Great War. These conferences and the peace palace enabled the Dutch to build up their newly elected neutral status and present as being a nation mostly unlike others, having now supposedly outgrown political and military ambitions, and being concerned only with peaceful trade. Suffice to say, there is an obvious element of self-interest in all this, in that, by building up a legally recognised and institutionally established alternative to armed conflict, the Netherlands could maintain its independence and keep a hold of its imperial possessions, especially the crown jewel of the Dutch East Indies. Unlike, say, Switzerland, there were few in the Netherlands who still harboured any dreams of territorial expansion in Europe. The goal was always the preservation of the status quo. The Dutch even declared an open-door economic policy in the East Indies to try and dissuade potential colonial rivals from seizing territory that they were being given economic access to in any case. The geostrategic position of the Netherlands was also considered by Dutch leaders to enhance their neutrality. It was thought that no major power would tolerate its occupation or annexation by one of its rivals. Yet the country's location also makes it one of great interest to study as it has a peculiar vulnerability. It was surrounded by major military powers, Germany, Great Britain and France. It possessed a large and virtually undefended empire, and the Netherlands itself had immense strategic value for the major European belligerents. The Netherlands is also fortunate, or perhaps unfortunate enough, to control the mouths of three major rivers, namely the Rhine, the Maas and the Scheld, and all three were considered vital trade routes into the continental mainland. The Dutch economy would also benefit greatly from neutrality in the event of war, as its economy relied heavily on seaborne trade. As late as 1914, the Dutch merchant marine was still larger than that of France and Italy. The Netherlands had a strong self-image based around naval trade and commerce, and a policy of neutrality allowed markets to be maintained, and should, in theory, keep sea routes open. The Dutch also had substantial reciprocal trade relationships with both Britain and Germany, and it seemed wise not to risk jeopardising access to either market. To give teeth to Dutch claims of neutrality, work began in 1874 on the Stelling van Amsterdam, which was a major defence system encircling the capital, consisting of 42 fortresses. The decision to invest in fortifications so far from the Dutch border was intended to signal its purely defensive nature, 
as they were clearly not being built to allow future Dutch field forces greater room for operational manoeuvre. Dutch defence spending remained relatively high throughout this period. Putting up a mere token resistance to any invader was seen as not an option. Even if Dutch defence efforts by themselves proved insufficient to stop a foreign aggressor, it was thought that the international sympathy and consideration generated by even a failed Dutch defensive stand would place the country in a better position in any post-war settlement. At the time of the Fortress Ring's construction, some European commentators even felt that it was among the strongest in the world, but by 1914, improvements in long and mid-range artillery meant that the Stelling van Amsterdam was increasingly doubtful as a deterrent. Dutch defensive geography possesses few large forested areas and, unlike equally small Switzerland, no mountain ranges to fall back upon. The only upland areas are in the far south around Maastricht and the province of Limburg, which are far too close to the German border to be effectively fortified. Indeed, both of the southern provinces of Limburg and Zeeland were deemed before the war to be essentially indefensible by Dutch military planners. What the Netherlands did possess, however, was a significant network of sluices, canals, dikes and dams that could help form a defensive line, as well as the ability to deliberately flood sections of its own land by breaching sections of the dikes along the coast. This defence, based on flooding and river lines, became known as the Nieuwe Hollands of Wartelini, or the New Holland Waterline. This defensive system would enable Dutch forces to shield Amsterdam, The Hague, Rotterdam and Utrecht, which were, and still are today, the most economically and demographically significant areas of the Netherlands. Its biggest disadvantage was that it would take several days for water levels to rise, but in an era prior to fast-moving mechanised troops and lethal air power, that was significantly less of an issue. It would also involve simply abandoning most of the country to an invader and causing widespread economic devastation. Additionally, the range of new heavy artillery by the early part of the 20th century meant that the flooded areas would no longer be sufficiently far from the Dutch fortification ring around Amsterdam to stop it from coming under fire. Deliberate flooding would now largely only be useful for impeding infantry attacks. The surprisingly fast German seizure of similarly fortified positions around the Belgian cities of Antwerp and Liège in 1914 would certainly suggest that modern howitzers and mortars had rendered many of the Dutch fortifications obsolete. Yet prior to the outbreak of the First World War, neutrality had started to become an important aspect of Dutch national identity. The option of neutrality had become an inviolable political principle, which saw the Netherlands destined to preserve international peace and a legal order by means of setting an ethical example. Neutrality was even interpreted as being the next logical step in a proud tradition of religious freedom and human rights, harking back to the so-called Dutch Golden Age in the 16th and 17th centuries. Additionally, in marked contrast to Wilhelmine Germany, the Dutch army had no particularly great standing within Dutch society, with much greater prestige attached to matters of trade, finance, transport and industry. Upon the outbreak of war, the Netherlands declared a policy of strict neutrality as early as August 4th of 1914. The supposed strictness of this neutrality was given weight by the Dutch going beyond the obligations entailed by international law. For instance, the Netherlands completely banned all belligerent warships from its ports, denying them any right of resupply. It was hoped that such a strict policy would reduce the scope for any misunderstandings or accidents that might lead to intervention by a belligerent. The twin pillars of Dutch foreign policy during the First World War were, firstly, strong armed deterrence, and secondly, a continued emphasis on its status as a leading neutral power that was morally above the conflict raging around it. Although all of the belligerent nations involved in the First World War declared their official respect for Dutch neutrality, 
various degrees of economic, military and political pressure were still brought to bear on the Netherlands. In particular, the shocking German violation of the neutrality of the Netherlands' immediate southern neighbour, the Kingdom of Belgium, meant that few Dutch elites were willing to rely solely on any such words of assurance. The Netherlands itself quickly became a kind of no-man's land, either as a means of leveraging some economic advantage, or of outright bringing the Dutch into the war on their side. The Dutch were perhaps fortunate compared to Belgium, as some of the original war planning that formed the Schlieffenplan had seen German divisions moving across the Dutch province of Limburg. Luckily for the Netherlands, Schlieffen's successor decided to limit German forces to squeezing through the narrow German-Belgian border corridor. Violating Dutch neutrality would have allowed the Imperial German army to bypass the Belgian fortifications at Liège and provided additional rail line connections to northern Belgium. Yet this would also have meant having to take on the 200,000 strong Dutch army. Whilst this could undoubtedly have been accomplished, the delays involved in doing so would have probably undermined the entire point of the operation, the rapid defeat of France. And so, unlike its unfortunate southern neighbour, the outbreak of war did not force the Netherlands into the conflict. One of the longest running and most important challenges to Dutch neutrality during the war was that of the naval blockade of Imperial Germany by the Entente powers. The Netherlands had become an important source for importing goods to Wilhelmine Germany, as, by 1914, the Dutch port of Rotterdam had managed to become the second most valuable gateway for overseas goods imported by Germany. In theory, despite the outbreak of war, neutral powers remained able to freely import whatever goods they wished. Therefore, the blockade of Germany need not have been of any concern to the Dutch. But what if a neutral country like the Netherlands were to start importing goods on an informal basis on behalf of Germany and re-exporting them at great profit over the border? The German commander, von Moltke, certainly hoped that the Netherlands would be the windpipe through which the German economy could keep on breathing, at least until Germany had defeated Russia, and he was also keen to keep on importing rubber, tin and petroleum from the Dutch East Indies. In 1915 and 1916, Germany received a million tonnes of agricultural imports each year from the Netherlands, around 50% of its total agricultural imports. Until the end of 1916, this trade remained vital, and the German Chancellor, Bethmann Holweg, even believed that Germany was only able to continue fighting on two fronts for so long because of these Dutch imports. The Dutch loophole in the Entente blockade meant that Britain would impose ever severer trade restrictions on the Netherlands. The Dutch government tried to argue that it could not agree to those restrictions because, as a neutral country, it could not abide by the regulations of one belligerent that were aimed at harming another. Yet in this period, the British Royal Navy possessed the power, if it so wished, to halt Dutch shipping completely and leave the Dutch East Indies totally isolated. The Dutch government had no choice but to back down and established a private trade organisation in the autumn of 1914 in conjunction with a British commercial attaché in the Netherlands. It was felt that by giving this power to a private organisation, this allowed the Dutch government to bypass its commitment to strict neutrality, although this was essentially just a face-saving measure. In reality, the British had been handed substantial control over Dutch overseas trade, and the Netherlands was forced to guarantee that imported goods would be used for domestic consumption only. The blockade was tightened even further in 1917 with the entry of the United States into the war, and also after a series of agricultural agreements signed with the Allies, which forced the Dutch to export half their agricultural surpluses to Britain. This meant the Netherlands grew far less useful to Germany as an economic aid, and after February of 1917, the threat of a German invasion increased considerably. The forced export of agricultural products led to food shortages in the Netherlands itself. 
In July of 1917, workers in Amsterdam stormed a warehouse storing potatoes destined for Britain as part of a signed agricultural export agreement. 2,000 troops were called in to stop widespread looting and rioting, but similar incidents occurred across the Netherlands from that point on. As the war ground on and Germany slowly starved, the pressure on the Netherlands became intense as Germany pressured the Dutch for all kinds of food imports and Britain tightened its checks and controls of Dutch merchant shipping. In addition to the forced restrictions imposed by the Allies, Dutch shipping would also suffer at the hands of the German Navy in the war during the period of unrestricted submarine warfare, the so-called Handelskrieg in 1917. One of the things that makes the Netherlands perhaps unique in terms of European neutral powers during the First World War was the maintenance of a large Prussian-style army. The Royal Dutch Army remained mobilised throughout the war and, if the worst came, could potentially feel the force of half a million men. This was an extremely high figure for a nation with a population of only around 5.5 million by 1914. This stood in stark contrast to some other smaller neutrals, who, as will be covered in future podcasts, actually demobilised their armed forces to seem less threatening to the surrounding warring states. These Dutch armed forces were to serve three key functions, defence, deterrence and the upholding of Dutch neutrality regulations. The core of the Dutch army was the so-called field force. This force had a strength of around 90,000 men divided into four divisions consisting of 72 infantry battalions and one cavalry brigade. The idea was that the field army would deploy against any hostile force by using the extensive Dutch rail network and then march and defeat the invader if possible. If, as likely, this proved beyond its means, the field force's task was simply to buy time for the Dutch reserve forces to inundate the land, blow up bridges and erect obstacles. Any surviving elements of the field force were then to retreat into Fortress Holland and reinforce the garrisons there. The remainder of the Dutch armed forces consisted of a Landwehr or Landsturm, usually older men who had completed service in the field army. The 11 provinces of the Netherlands were divided into 48 Landwehr districts, each serving as a base for resident conscripts. These men would often live at home and would man the closest fortified positions to where they lived. They were also mostly responsible for patrolling the Dutch borders. Officially, all military contract between the Dutch armed forces and those of the belligerents was banned, and so, in order to be able to keep the Dutch army well-trained and ready for anything, a whole series of artificial trench networks were built in order to simulate probable conditions in the event of invasion. A few years ago, I had the chance to take a look around the area where some of them were built. One can still walk around the remains, although all that now exists are a few shallow depressions in the ground. The Royal Dutch Navy can also be briefly mentioned. In 1914, the Dutch Navy in home waters consisted of three cruisers, five submarines, four mine layers, and up to 30 torpedo boats. An additional four cruisers and several support vessels were overseas in the Dutch East Indies, and could be recalled if necessary. This force was dwarfed by that of the British Royal Navy and the Imperial German Navy, and, as a result, Dutch ships were assigned to patrol territorial waters during peacetime, and in the event of war, to provide some extra firepower for coastal fortifications. Similarly weak was the new Dutch Air Force, which in 1914 possessed only four machines that had been purchased from France. Dutch air strength slowly increased in size during the war by placing orders for 38 aircraft from France, Sweden and Germany. In addition, the Dutch tried to purchase any belligerent aircraft that landed on Dutch soil, which would otherwise have been interned until the end of the war, and Dutch engineers successfully attempted to build replicas of these models. By the end of 1918, the Netherlands had managed to assemble a mishmash force 
of around 150 aircraft. To enhance the chances of these combined armed forces serving as an effective deterrent, the Dutch took care to maintain a certain transparency regarding their defensive preparations and their force deployments. There were frequent informal information exchanges with the military and naval attaches of Germany, Great Britain and France, which gave the belligerents an insight, in general terms, into Dutch defence capability. It was hoped that such openness would factor favourably in potential enemy decision-making, demonstrating that the Netherlands had the capability to effectively defend its territory, and that it was not deployed in such a way as to threaten imminent offensive action. The Netherlands was also subject to intense espionage activity by both sides, but especially by Britain and France, as a means of getting agents over the border into Germany and occupied Belgium. After the war, the head of the British Imperial General Staff acknowledged that had it not been for its intelligence operations in the Netherlands, its entire secret service would probably have collapsed during the war. MI6 established a station in Rotterdam for the duration of the war, and was forever attempting to build and maintain spy networks in German-occupied Belgium. Germany became so concerned at the number of agents it detected that it built, at great expense, a 300-kilometre-long electric fence along the Belgian-Dutch land border. Likewise, Germany also set up a spy base in Rotterdam, and would frequently ferry agents over to Britain to gain intelligence on Royal Naval deployments. The Dutch also tried to raise the perceived value of their neutrality by engaging in humanitarian and diplomatic activities. Dutch ambulances and medical staff were sent to fronts across Europe, food parcels were sent to occupied Belgium, and the Dutch facilitated the exchange of injured prisoners of war between Britain and Germany. They also put themselves forward as mediators for any potential peace negotiations, although obviously they were not successful in this. Dutch diplomatic staff, based in various embassies and consulates, helped to look after the interests of citizens of various belligerent nations who resided in enemy territory. They represented Turkish, Austro-Hungarian and German civilians in the Entente-friendly states of China, Brazil, Greece and Siam, now Thailand, and did likewise for Allied expatriates in Germany, occupied Belgium, Bulgaria and Turkey. Dutch neutrality was also tested by the constant need to disarm and then in turn any belligerent troops, aircraft or naval vessels that strayed over its borders. Over 33,000 Belgian troops and around 1,700 British soldiers from the Royal Naval Division were interned in the Netherlands, the majority having fled over the Dutch border during the successful German siege of Antwerp in 1914. Also of particular note were the tensions caused by the interning of two German U-boats UB-6 and UB-30, that ran aground on the Dutch coast early in 1917. As well as these military internees, the Netherlands also hosted approximately a million Belgian civilians in the early years of the war due to fear of German atrocities, either real or imagined. Gradually this number reduced to just over 100,000, and they were placed in guarded refugee camps. It would not be until February of 1919 that the last Belgian citizens finally returned home. It is worth spending some time looking now at how Dutch neutrality was tested in a very specific manner, in the case of the southern province of Zeeland, and how it led to strained relations with both sides during the war. In August of 1914, after a siege lasting some weeks, German forces captured the Belgian coastal city of Antwerp. Antwerp would, in theory, have made an excellent naval base for Germany, especially for its U-boat fleet and its operations against the British Royal Navy and Merchant Marine. The problem was that the Dutch province of Zeeland, which bordered the area around Antwerp, prevented the German navy from ever making any real use of the port facilities due to the approaches being neutralised waters, 
and forced the Germans to operate from less optimal facilities further down the Flemish coast. The British too developed an interest in Zeeland, as during 1915 the Germans had systematically built a continuous line of heavy coastal batteries and machine gun posts along the stretch of Belgian coast that they controlled. This would make any potential British landing operations looking to turn the flank of the Western Front extremely difficult to execute. The British might therefore divert their attention to the comparatively lightly defended Dutch coast in Zeeland as an alternative. The Dutch High Command was therefore forced into investing significant funds and troops in Zeeland, more than in any other area outside of Fortress Holland. Mine barriers were placed in the shelled estuary leading up to Antwerp, and the Dutch Navy anchored ships along the route. Along the coast, the Dutch allocated coastal artillery, started the mining of the sand dunes in Zeeland, and dispatched additional forces, amounting to around 15,000 men by October of 1916. The Dutch also began performing army exercises in the area, to signal to the belligerents that the Netherlands took its neutral status seriously. All of these military efforts ultimately proved an effective way for the Netherlands to signal its resolve and ability to defend its sovereignty against any belligerent looking for any potential easy gains at the expense of Dutch neutrality. Yet on March 30th of 1916, there occurred a major incident that was to seriously test the Netherlands. The Dutch envoy in Berlin was summoned and told that German military intelligence believed that Britain was about to launch an amphibious attack on Belgium in an attempt to open a new front against German forces there. As part of this operation, the Dutch envoy was told, the British were also planning to seize the coast of southwest Netherlands, and that a sizable fleet, right at that very moment, was being amassed in the Thames and Humber estuaries to launch this operation. Although the Dutch envoy was assured that Germany still intended to respect its neutrality, the envoy was also informed that Germany would undertake all military measures it considered necessary for the protection of its positions in Belgium. The envoy reported back, and this led to an emergency meeting being convened in The Hague to assess the veracity of this report. The head of the army, navy, and the Dutch commander-in-chief were all sceptical of this report. Their own intelligence had not noted any unusual British fleet deployments, and this fact, combined with the relatively recent failure of the British amphibious operations at Gallipoli, meant that they recommended no action be taken. But others in the cabinet realised that this was not the issue, as the German message was, to them, clear. If they did not act, then Germany may take this as a casus belli, to invade at some point in the future. Therefore, the Dutch cabinet decided to cancel all military leave, an extremely unpopular move so close to Easter, and redeploy some forces towards the coast. Yet the crisis was quick to pass. A few days later, the Dutch envoy was once again summoned to Berlin, and told that the invasion report had turned out not to be as reliable as it had initially been thought, but that the German government was extremely pleased to see such a prompt response by their Dutch counterparts. The Dutch government felt unable to so quickly counterman the leave restriction, and so remained fully mobilised all through the Easter holidays, despite it being clear that there was no actual threat. In terms of neutrality, the significance of this episode is that on the basis of only a misinformed German rumour, a sovereign neutral nation had been forced into military measures in an attempt at pacification. In the words of one historian, when its neighbour told the Netherlands to jump, it had jumped. In fact, it is entirely possible that the whole incident was nothing more than a public relations exercise concocted by the German foreign ministry in an attempt to deflect increasing anti-German sentiment back onto the British. On 16th of March, a recently launched Dutch passenger liner, the Tubantia, had been torpedoed off the coast of Holland. Witness reports and fragments from the wreckage confirmed that the torpedo was of German origin. 
the fallout from this incident had turned Dutch public opinion to virulently anti-German, so spreading a rumour of a British invasion was probably an effective way of smoothing over this rough period in Dutch-German relations. This incident also shows how, for the Dutch during the First World War, military considerations were completely subordinate to the requirements of the government's neutrality policy. When the Dutch commander-in-chief, General Schneiders, asked if the Dutch government would seek the assistance of German forces in the event of an actual British attack, the Dutch Prime Minister simply refused to even contemplate the idea until an actual invasion by any belligerent occurred. Potential military alliances were not even to be discussed. Snyders was even forced by the government to deploy his precious divisions in the most neutral way possible, with one division each deployed in the east, west and south, and the final division kept in reserve in the centre of the country. And, despite pressure from General Schneiders, the Dutch government still refused to be drawn on any potential plans for cooperation with potential Allied forces in the event of invasion, as it was worried that any detailed planning that was leaked may inadvertently bring about the very crisis it was hoping to avoid by damaging its credibility as a neutral state. Rounding off our look at the Netherlands during the First World War is an interesting incident involving the United States. Very late in the war, in March of 1918, an additional crisis occurred that would severely test Dutch neutrality. The US entry into the war on the Entente side meant that large numbers of fresh American troops now suddenly needed to be transported over the Atlantic to the Western Front in France. Yet the Allies were lacking in suitable vessels to do this within a reasonable time frame, which led to a controversial decision by the US President Woodrow Wilson to order the seizure of 46 Dutch ships at harbour in American ports. The civilian crews of these vessels put up no resistance, and work swiftly began on turning the ships into Allied troop transports. Germany immediately protested this action, believing that these ships had been too lightly given up, and the German field commander Ludendorff interpreted this as a Dutch violation of its own neutrality. He immediately demanded that the Dutch allow German military transportation rights through its territory, a demand that was just as quickly rejected. Thankfully, at the time, Germany was engaged in its final spring offensive on the Western Front and had no spare forces with which to pressure the Netherlands during a tense period of negotiations, and as a result, the Netherlands was forced into making only minor concessions to Germany. By the end of the war, the pre-Dutch optimism regarding neutrality had largely vanished. The idea of neutrality, as underwritten by international conventions and supported by Europe's great powers, had gone. The Netherlands now faced a much more uncertain future. Unlike neutral Switzerland, whose neutral status was guaranteed in long-standing international treaties, Dutch neutrality was never assumed and only existed so long as Dutch governments continued to behave as a neutral power in front of a belligerence. Dutch neutrality, unlike that of the Swiss, could never be taken for granted, and so the Netherlands had to act with complete and utter impartiality at all times. The stakes during a new era of total war meant that potential enemies were no longer going to be restrained by observing the letter of the law. The Dutch attempt to build up the legal concept of neutrality into a set of mostly uncontested guarantees for the rights of neutral states had failed under the pressures of war. Although the Netherlands did not jettison the idea of neutrality in the interwar period, it would now only pursue it for a lack of any better available options. Okay, that's all for this week on our topic of Dutch neutrality up to the end of the First World War. If you have any questions about this episode or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. As I have already mentioned before, I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. 
Next time, we will be continuing our look at Neutral Netherlands, picking up right where we left off at the end of the First World War and moving through to the capitulation of May 1940. After that, I haven't yet decided, maybe Switzerland, maybe Belgium, maybe somewhere else entirely. Who knows? But wherever it is, I hope you can join me. So thank you for listening, and until next time. Yeah.